Hi, this is Michael Waits and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Today we have Joel Lin, who's building Citadel. Joel, thanks for coming on the show. Did I pronounce the name of the company properly, by the way? Yes, Citadel is the right way to pronounce it. What does that mean? Because in my brain, I kept saying Citadel, and maybe that's just because I used to work at Citibank, but what does Citadel mean? So Citadel is actually a merging of the words between Citadel, which is a casa, the DAO, which is a decentralized autonomous organization. Got it. Something very new in the Web3 space. Yep. Yeah, okay. Citadel, I get it, like Citadel. Do we want to just get a little bit of your background first? Because then I want to go into what is a DAO, but let's just get your background first. Sounds great. So a little bit of my ground. My name is Joe. I am one of the contributors at Citadel. And my background has mainly been in the institutional university space. Previously, I was with UBS Investment Bank, the land, CBRE. Okay. And uh, most recently with a private equity platform funded by one of the biggest insurers in the world. That's kind of before I came into the Web3 rabbit hole. And <laughs> yeah, and I've been in this space since then, uh, full time. So what gets you, sorry, from Capital Land, right? Which is just a very traditional real estate company and a good one for sure. And UBS, I worked at UBS for a bit as well. But what gets you to move from there? into Web3? Because normally the transition from Web3 is from well, like Web2, I was building this other thing and then I saw this new tech come in and I wanted to switch. But like, what was it for you? So it is a very huge change from many aspects of what I used to know uh, from a cultural perspective, Go ahead. from a lifestyle perspective. Yeah, so everything changed. But from my, from my perspective, I think uh, I'm just kind of going on with the trend. Uh, Web3 is kind of a byproduct uh, to me of okay. the uh, gig economy that is uh, increasingly taking the world by storm. Uh, we have heard of the great resignation. We have heard of uh, millennials and all, all the younger generations kind of deciding that they want a much better work-life balance. They want to be better recognized for their effort. They want a, a culture that is more focused on uh, objectives and performance and recognizing them for their contribution and talents. And I was kind of figuring out what this means, really. So um, decided to take a peek in, under the hood in the Web3 space. And I kind of found that with the Web3 space, you better recognition, you get better balance of your work and uh, lifestyle. And most importantly, you don't really lose up much from uh, entering a TradFi space into a DeFi space. Tell me how this works, right? So what is the connection between Web3 and the gig economy and the great resignation? Because this is something new that I've heard, right? Like, I, I think I understand what Web3 is, and we'll get to a definition of a DAO in a second. But what is that connection between Web3 and the gig economy? So in the Web3 space, compensation is predominantly dished out on based on a task basis. Yeah. So it's a task-orientated kind of model. In the old world, that, or the, or the traditional world that I came from, we, we are paid for our time to, to turn up at work and to not have any other commitments other than what we sign on full-time at a typical Web2 platform, a traditional company platform. And how it works uh, in those cases is we are cogs in a bigger system. We are out there generating revenue for the shareholders, for the creditors, for all the different stakeholders of the company. Yep. And our share of that revenue we generate is basically our salaries. 
so that is what a web to traditional uh, platform is like. We, and we have found that um, in many cases, uh, both in my team and outside my team, we have found that uh, talented employees who are able to outperform and are very productive tend to get penalized by their inability to actually contribute more and getting compensated better than the typical pay review cycle Yeah, in a traditional company. I think you just described yeah. my entire career at Morgan Stanley. You're laughing, yeah. but I'm not kidding. Like I used to have these conversations when I would provide services to some of the people on the trading desk. And I was like, what was that worth to you this year? And they were like, at least a few million bucks. And then my boss came and said, here's your bonus of $50,000. And I'm like, huh, it doesn't make any sense to me because I'm being told it's contributing millions of dollars to the trading desk and you're paying me 50 grand. And like, you could pay me a hundred grand and it would change my life, but it wouldn't impact your ability to compensate everybody else. It just seemed unfair. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, because in a Web2 space, you have your capital providers, which are your creditors, your shareholders and yep. stuff that you have to meet and prioritize very interestingly above and beyond the employees who are bringing the revenue yeah. in the space. Yeah, and, and to me, I felt that there's a gap here because I see talents increasingly leaving the Web2 space or the Web3 space. And that's predominantly because the Web3 space compensates in a more fair manner, whereby we are paid for our contribution measured by the tasks that we put up and in many cases recognized by the community that we are making a positive impact on. And we can go into detail about how a DAO operates, which will help to explain what I meant. But what I see increasingly is a whole bunch of very talented engineers, the top talents everywhere, leaving the likes of your Facebook, Google, all your Web2 platforms and just becoming part of the gig economy. They don't identify with any single one company. Right. In fact, they identify with multiple projects in the Web3 space that they're working on. And each project, they find value in how they can actually contribute as an individual and as part of the greater economy to build up the future of the uh, Web3 universe, the use cases and stuff. And to define a person in the Web2 space by way of his job title, saying that, hey, you know what? You're a marketing executive or you are a technical executive. So all you can do is marketing or technical. I feel shortchange a talented individual significantly because you'll find that a person, anybody, is actually unique in the way that they are talents more than just what their title describes them as. Sure. I can be a good technical expert. I can be a good marketer. I can be a good singer. I can be a good everything, right? And... But why, why am I only compensated for what my title defined me as? Yeah. In the Web3 space, it allows the individual to define himself more wholesomely, more comprehensively. Um, yeah, so talk to me about what a DAO is, because I want to get back to this idea of increased compensation, but there's also this idea of increased competition. But talk to me about a DAO first, and then I want to talk to some theories around this access that it gives you to get compensated for more of what you do holistically as opposed to just how your job title defines you yeah so what is a DAO and how does it work and why is it better so DAO effectively is acronym yep. for decentralized autonomous organization mm -hmm. we know also proprietorship we know of partnerships we know of limited companies listed companies yep. a DAO is probably the new generation of digital companies that is actually defined more so by their communities than their capital providers. And when I say communities, I literally mean the communities, the contributors, the ones that made the DAO 
projects successful. It's held together by a vision and mission that everybody holds dear to. And what's unique about the DAO is that it's a global platform. It's not incorporated in any single one country or jurisdiction. It exists on the blockchain. Uniquely because of this, a DAO typically does not have a bank account because in order to open a bank account, you need to have shareholders and stuff. So uh, what a DAO have in place of a bank account is actually a blockchain treasury, a vault, a safe, whatever you call it, that is managed and guarded by its community members. So having said that, uh, in most cases, DAOs compensate uh, their contributor, their community, uh, not by way of core hard cash, but by way of the DAO tokens, which is the project tokens, or other digital assets like Bitcoin, Ethereum, USDC, so and so forth. Okay, can I ask you this though, because this is really interesting, right? And you're trying to change, almost like flip capitalism on its head, right? Where the capital providers have all of the leverage, they hire a bunch of people to do stuff for them, they compensate them based on what they think the market's going to take for them. And what you're saying is let's flip it upside down and let's compensate people, first of all, not out of a bank account, but out of sort of a digital vault, yeah? Which is neat, right? Because if you're global, then you can't really have, like you're not based in Vietnam, you're not based in Singapore, you're not based in New York or London, you're just global, right? By definition, the technology allows you to do that. But at some point, is like being a DAO, is it more efficient, more effective, do you know what I mean? And at the end of the day, is it going to get run by humans? Is it going to get run by the software? Like, how does it actually work? And does it devolve again back into, hey, you know what? I'm right. You're wrong. And the community's made the wrong decision. Like, do we have a model for an ex for a successful DAO that's worked at some level? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, we have. Now, let's address. There's quite a bit of uh, yeah. topics in here that we will probably have to unpack. Go for it. But let's look at the efficiency part first. Yep. Now, a DAO, is it more efficient or less efficient than a traditional company? It really depends on how the DAO is run. Go ahead. Just like any other traditional company. It depends on the talents of the contributors of the DAO. Yep. So it really depends on the community. Just like a company depends on its employee to define how efficient it can be. A DAO depends on its community. Uh, members to define how efficient it can be. A DAO is made up of very good quality community members anchored together by a common vision and mission uh, and, and, and pulling together their talents to realize that vision will be a lot more efficiently run than, than one that is. How do you decide who's part of the community though? DAO is a very new uh, structure. Yep. So to be honest, still in experimental mode. Go ahead. Increasingly, we find Initially, the DAOs open, anybody can join, right? right? And then after a while, we realized that uh, that doesn't make for a very efficient DAO. Right. Because anybody, yeah. Yeah. And then some of the DAOs start uh, experimenting with a more permission structure, whereby anybody can join at a base level. But in order to, uh, to, to be compensated in any way or form by the DAO, Right. You need to, to build a certain track record or you need to build a certain level of commitment to the DAO before they assign you roles and responsibilities that then uh, give you the right to apply to the uh, task board to then get compensated for the favors DAOs, the task that the DAOs dishes out to its community to perform. Okay. So that is one way. We have seen other DAOs actually starting to move straight into permission 
down, whereby they will actually identify who the individuals are in real life. Yeah. And try to make a judgment call based on that. Now, that kind of DAO seems to be operating a little bit more like a Web2 platform, a TrackFi company, because uh, in those cases, it's subjected to the individual characteristics of the person rather than his output. But those DAOs exist. Now, where we see the best kind of DAOs out there are the DAOs that assess performance literally based on the output, based on your contribution based on your technical capabilities. Those kind of DAOs, they allow for anonymous contribution, whereby we do not need to know who you are as an individual, where you're from, what you do, everything, as long as you're not sanctioned individual. But what we can do is that we recognize that hey, this is the task that you undertake to perform and you perform it up to expectation or even exceeding expectation. And in those cases, you are compensated purely based on your output rather than who you are as an individual. Now, this changed a lot of things in the global marketplace yeah. uh, for human capital. Because as you can see, sometimes today, it's a lot of the job where you're born, right? We yeah. can have very talented individuals born in emerging nations that are earning peanuts or even living hand foot to mouth. Yep. But, be but because I'm born in a much more developed nation, I kind of got lucky. Even if I'm not as talented comparatively, I lead a better lifestyle. Yeah. But I get compensated better. Now, I think a DAO will ultimately help achieve the ideology that there is ultimately only one price to pay for talent, regardless of where the talent is in the world, and it's the global price. So here's so here's my question for you, because you've brought up something that's actually really close to my heart. There are companies like TopTal, right, and Turing, which if you're sitting in Silicon Valley, seem like a great idea. And let me just go through this with you and just stop me when you want to make a comment, right? But like Turing is, a, is an example of this. They say, Hey, look, it costs you, and I'm going to make up numbers. Yeah, $225,000, $250,000 to hire a great developer in San Francisco or in Boston. But we have access to developers and engineers in India, in Pakistan, in Vietnam, where the engineering talent is great, but it only costs you $50,000 there, right? So this gets back to your idea of a global price. Do you think that that's going to, at some level, drop the salaries in Silicon Valley, increase the salaries or the compensation, let's say, in Vietnam as just as a proxy for everywhere else? Do you know what I mean? And there's going to be just some even balance out there that a DAO can actually accomplish that over time? Because that's what I'm hoping for. Yeah. What do you think? I think a concept of DAO, first we need to understand, don't just compensate for uh, turning up in the office, right? Yeah, for sure. Not at all. It's the output yeah. that matters, yeah? Yeah, it's the output, right? So depending on how much output someone achieves, he might get compensated for doing more work. He might get compensated more than someone doing less work. Yeah, yeah. So then we look into the concept of compensation, not on a money or uh, annual basis, but a compensation on an hourly basis because your time is your most precious resource, right? Productivity of a person then matters, of talent then matters, because if a talent can produce more output in a small amount of time, he gets to earn more, literally. Yeah, yeah so, I mean, we're, we're kind of getting back to this. Are you selling time for money or are you selling output for money as well? But here's the other thing that I'm really curious about. Again, just an opinion, right? If proximity no longer matters, right? Like you said, I, I always talk about this. Like it was an historical accident that I was born in California as opposed to, you know, born in Lithuania. Like it's just a historical accident, right? But, and because of that, I benefit for sure. But if Web3 and the ability to have some anonymity behind an avatar, right, which then doesn't hide me from doing something illegal, but takes away bias in your attempt to hire me, right? And that's the benefit that you're talking about here for Web3, at least in this particular case. I still don't want to trade money for time, but I want to trade it for output. Output. 
But, but it also increases the competition almost by definition, right? Because then if I'm not concerned about proximity and I'm not concerned about, you know, just people that I know, then there are thousands or millions of more people that can do it. So at some point, that arbitrage has to close. There's got to be some kind of balancing out of what that compensation is, whether it's for time or for output. How do, you, how do those things get balanced? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think compensation also depends on, uh, if you're looking at compensation based on output, we also have to factor in other elements such as productivity yep, and yep. the individual uh, choice of work-life balance, right? So, yeah. Yeah, so now I choose to take on the task if I want to take on the task. If I do not want to, I don't have to take it on, not like the traditional company where, you know, some poor guys just get dumped like, tons and tons of work <laughs> regardless of what kind of uh, pay he's on right yeah so he has no say right because he's helped the leverage is held against him it's like you don't do this we'll find someone else to do it right and, and then the poor guy will just have to do it so i think it will lead for a more healthier global economy well i feel and already we are starting to see this shift happening i've been to many conferences and on many webinars and hearing people talking about the great resignation and people are wondering where all these guys left to. Right? They yeah. left somewhere, they have to appear somewhere else, right? And they were saying that these guys just left, they, they didn't uh, reappear somewhere. And we are seeing these kind of things manifest themselves in terms of unemployment rates in all the developed nations, whereby you see, even developing nations, whereby you see your unemployment rate going down. Really. And people are saying that, you know, the economy is doing very well and everything because the unemployment rate is going down. And then the companies will be like, but I can't hire people for the job, <laughs> right? And that's creating wage inflation, right? And then you ask yourself, why are these companies not being able to hire for the job? Where did all these great talents go to? Why are all these companies ultimately being stuck with the people who well, choose not to yeah. go down the rabbit hole, right? right? And then you realize that, hey, you know what? These guys are actually all appearing in Web3. They are just taking on multiple projects at once. They are no longer being held hostage by any single manager or single employer, they are having a say in how they want to live their life and how they want to be compensated for their output. Yeah. Uh, in terms of competition, um, discovery of talent in the web space is still a little bit uh, behind that in the real world. So there's a bit of inefficiency there because, uh, like I say, many DAOs have ultimately decided to require talents to first uh, show that they are committed and are able to have a track record before yep. even get compensated in the first place. But once you're on that compensation level, you practically have the ability to leverage on the fact that, hey, you know what, I'm a compensated contributor at this DAO. So when I go to another DAO and I say that, hey, I want to contribute here, and if this DAO is reputable, it instantly opens me access to other DAOs. So that will lead to the better Web3 projects, more reputable Web3 projects, actually getting the better contributors first, the more talented contributors first, because people want to work there. So you, you're going to see the same tier uh, in the Web3 space replicated by way of the Web2 five companies, where you have Google, Facebook, top tier one kind of companies, and then you have your local MNCs and uh, local localized companies, then you have your SMEs. Yep. In the Web3 space, you're going to see projects kind of break out into the space where the top projects will always get the best talents uh, and then your subsequent projects will get will have to share the rest of the talents pool. But what we're going to see uh, effectively over time and if the trend takes hold, the, the great resonation is no longer going to be the great resonation. It's just going to be the perpetual resonation whereby <laughs> talents in the, in the track five space will just, by way of uh, their social circle, realize that, hey, you know what? A uh, colleague that I used to work with is a great talent. He left the company. He's now leading an even better lifestyle than me. 
uh, slogging my ass off <laughs> in the company. I'm just going to go join him, right? And then you start seeing second leap of resolution coming, whereby the first wave influenced the second wave of colleagues to join them. And then we're starting to see, actually, university students, grad students, all the younger generations being very open, being very conversant in the Web3 ecosystem. Yeah. In fact, they are doing all the liquidity mining. They're playing actively in the space. Now you have university students literally setting up mining rigs in their dorm just to mine Bitcoin and stuff. These guys will literally hop right out of school into the Web3 space. Yeah, because what's the difference, right? I mean, I look at this and I think Steve Jobs was allowed to be the CEO of Apple and the CEO of Pixar and nobody thought twice about it, right? There were Nobody thought that there was any conflict of interest there or conflict of time. And yet there was a story recently, I think it was Tata Consultancy, I can't remember where, where like some guy or some gal was working there, but also doing some other consulting on the side and people were super worried and I think that person got fired. I can't remember the exact yeah. details. Yeah, right? I, I remember I saw that too. Yeah, but the point is like, so it's okay for Jack Dorsey and for Elon Musk and in the past for Steve Jobs to be the CEO of multiple companies, but the people that work for them, it's not okay for them to be working on multiple projects at the same time, even if, even if, some of those projects say are some of the same technical details, right? Because it feels unfair. Like, I'm paying you to do this. You can't then take that knowledge and do it over here. But in reverse, the shareholders should think for these big companies, I'm compensating you to focus on this, and you're focusing on both of them. Like, why is that okay? And I think that's one of the things that you're talking about here, yeah? Yeah. But let's bring this down a little bit into Citadel, right? First of all, you call yourself a contributor. Is that purposeful? Do you know what I mean? To like just set a tone for the way you want Citadel to be run? Because in a way, you're the founder, yeah? Or one of the founding team, yeah? The founding team actually consists of a bunch of talents coming together to build the project. Yeah. Go ahead. And yes, it's also the way we see the DAO being, the culture being set, the DAO being built, whereby no single individual should be given ultimate authorities on how things are built and developed. Okay. In fact, we believe that consensus mechanism is best mechanism out there and, and it's it's actually proven by real how we build our DAO. When I first came in, my concept of tokenization was very different from what the DAO concept of tokenization is today. What is the um the consensus mechanism that you're using? And then talk to me about the tokenization as well. So what we encourage is actually contributors who are committed to the DAO coming together. We're giving them autonomy to set the direction, yep. set how it's going to be built and stuff. Okay. And then we have um, constructive discourse uh, whereby we actively share our opinion. For example, initially when I talk about tokenization, yep. I was saying that look, tokenization should just be focused on the real estate. There should not be a second uh, token out there, right? There should not be a platform token and everything in there. And then some other guys came over and said, look, if you look at all the past tokenization effort that have done that, there wasn't really much traction, right, in a huge way. And uh, they said, look, why not you consider it another way of building it? And they shared their experience, their knowledge in terms of how some other projects' best practices have made them successful. We were able to collectively take all of them together, all their experiences, all their knowledge and everything uh, to come together and kind of mesh them together to ultimately be what Citadel is today. Now, if you look at Citadel, we actually provide more value than any real estate organization project out there, I would say, simply because we have one common vision that the team share together, which is real estate can be more valuable on chain than in the real world. How, how does that work, though? So the basic concept is this, right? Uh, real estate in the real world today is very capital inefficient because of all the existing legacy 
kind of systems in place. And that makes it transaction very inaccessible, very illiquid, and very siloed. So what's uh, the inefficiency there? So when we look at efficiency, when we define capital efficiency in yep. the our project, we came together and we said, how do we define capital efficiency? We look at it from three categories, three key categories. The first one is better accessibility. The second one, better liquidity. And the third one, better composability, which literally means interoperability of the real estate tokens between multiple Web3 projects that then increases the use cases which then increases the demand and ultimately the value for the real estate. There's so much stuff to cover here. I feel like we need to do like five or six episodes on this. Liquidity is something that's always been really interesting to me in real estate, right? It's like, it's one of the few things you really can't short. Sure, I can sell a REIT short, but I can't sell a house short, right? And I can't sell a building short. But does the tokenization allow you to do that? In other words, how does the liquidity increase except for just making it more accessible? So let, let's unpack some of these terminologies yeah. there. So to answer your question, yes, in Web3 space, you can actually sell a real estate short. And we can go into that later on. Please. So, but let's also go into liquidity. Liquidity is not about shorting the market. Liquidity is about getting access to yep. your equity in the real estate anytime you want it, anytime you need it, without requiring any permission to do so. Right. So today, if you bought a piece of real estate, let's say I bought a piece of house, right, in cash, and the house cost one million, so I paid one million in cash. I, I basically swapped one million in cash for one million in equity in the house, right? Yep. And today, uh, tomorrow, I realized that, hey, you know what? For some reason, I need maybe uh, four or five hundred thousand of that one million dollar. Right? Yeah. The fastest I can get the cash back by way of uh, financing or even selling the house. If financing, I'll probably looking at 30 days and I need the bank permission to get so. Right. And if you think about it, right, it's actually a bit ridiculous because when the bank is going to give you that 500,000 which you put into the house back to you, right, they're going to ask you, hey, Michael, um, where are you from? Do you have a job? How much are you making? Are you married? What other debts do you have? They literally go down into your personal life. So intrusive, right? And at the end of the day, right, they're still holding the house collateral and the house is a $1 million house and you're just taking a $500,000 out of that. If they just see your house and sell it on the market, they can get easily more than 500000 back. Which is no, why do they need to know so much about you before even giving you the cash, your cash back to you? Go ahead. Right. And then the whole process takes 30 days. And by the time your cash comes in, you'll be like, you, you'll probably be like, okay, either the opportunity is gone or you'll be in really deep trouble. Right. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's how companies go bankrupt, right? Because uh, they're not able to come out of the cash when they need to, right? What we define by liquidity, right? Go ahead. The most liquid form of real estate today in the markets are your real estate investment trusts that you can yeah, yeah, that you REITs. can access anytime your REITs, right? Which you can access anytime on the stock market and buy and sell anytime during exchange trade hours, excluding public holidays, right? But then that means that on Saturday, Sunday, you still have no access to your cash. If the bank decides to declare bank holiday, you have no access to cash. If the exchange decides to declare exchange holiday, you have no access to cash. If the exchange go up in flames, you have no access to your cash. Or if there's some kind of global crisis, right? Like pick a global crisis in the past 25 years, they'll just shut down the stock exchange for a day or two. Like we've seen it happen. Yeah, and you okay. have no access to your cash. Yeah. And that's unfortunately the way things are in the Web2 space today. 
And that is a problem with real estate we see. Now, what if you can access your real estate equity cash any time of the day, 24-7, 365 days a year, right. permissionless? And they don't need to go and dig into um, who you are, where you're from, are you male or female, or, or are you in the middle, or whatever, right? or how much you're making, or stuff like that. Right? There's no biasness in giving you the cash and giving you the cash within five minutes, which is already too long because right, it's blockchain really process long. a transaction less than that, right? So can I ask you this though? So what role does KYC and, and AML play in this stuff? And at some level, does it really matter? Or are those just edge so, conditions? Do you know what I mean? Like a normal person, like your uncle, your sister, whoever it is, it's not money laundering. They're just not, right? And yet you still have to comply with the same thing that drug dealers, human traffickers, and, and arms dealers have to deal with because those guys and gals do stuff wrong, right? So, but banks and investment banks and investment houses still have to go through KYC and even big exchanges like Binance have to do KYC as well and have to have AML policies. What is the, like, how does all that fit in? So we believe that banks, that exchanges will have a place to play in terms of uh, this whole ecosystem. Yep. Uh, they are the trusted institutions to do the AYC, uh, KYC and all kind of stuff. They're the gateways for fiat on-chain and vice versa. So that we believe is there to play. Now, um, before I go deeper into this topic, I would like to draw a distinction. Many people normally say KYC ML in one sentence or even in one word, uh, but they practically mean two different kinds of things. Well, completely KYC different. is for your client. Completely AML different. is anti-money laundering. Yep. Right? Yep. Now, um, between both of them, the red lines is AML. You do not want to deal with terrorist fine, uh, money. You do not want to deal with right. drug money. You don't want to deal with war crimes and stuff like that, right? Yep. So AML is the red line that we draw here. And in the DeFi space, uh, that has been the biggest focus among other regulators. And I'm, I'm happy to say that a technology has kind of caught up in this space. There are actually AML services being provided right now that doesn't require KYC. I don't need to know who you are as an individual. Right. But so I know Merkle where Science the does this, yeah. Comes. Yeah. So I know where the source of your money comes from. Yep. Right. And if your money is tainted in any way, that money ends its journey where it's tainted. Yep. It can't continue its journey anymore. Because anybody else it touches will taint those individuals too. Right. So that is the that is the that's the beauty about the blockchain. You trace it back down to the point where the money is minted, where the where, where the current the digital assets are minted. Unlike cash today, uh, whereby the moment is out in the world where you have the physical note, there's no way to trace who gets what cash, right? Yeah. And I believe because of that, uh, the current AML KYC standards are actually designed for the cash economy. They are. Uh, they are actually designed for to address uh, the cases whereby, you know, when the cash lands in the hands of a person and get transferred from this person to that person, you have no way of ensuring that the cash is doing the right thing. But when it comes back into the banking system, uh, I have to do the KYC AML. So I think that's where the currency KYC AML standards are focused on. Uh, that's why AML have to be focused by KYC. Because today you can't do AML without the KYC, without knowing who the person is. Now yeah, on the yeah. blockchain, yeah, you can. Yeah, on the blockchain is a completely different concept. In fact, on the blockchain, you can be anonymous until at which point in time you decide to do something malicious. Because if you realize, in the DeFi universe, the transaction has a pay transaction fee to the chain, literally, in order to process the transaction, right? And that fee to be paid 
you can't just get it from anywhere. You probably have to get it from a centralized exchange. Like for example, if I'm going to make a transaction on MetaMask, yep. right, um, I will have to first fund the MetaMask wallet with Ethereum. And where are we going to get the Ethereum from? I have to get it from the exchange, right? And the exchange and the banks actually dots me. So after I get my Ethereum, I can process all the transactions I want with my MetaMask wallet anonymously. But if I do something funny, if I do something wrong, and the blockchain is very transparent. People see instantly, hey, you know what? This MetaMask wallet did something wrong, right? They are able to track where I get my source of capital, which is the Ethereum form. Right. They'll right. say, hey, you know, you got it from Binance, you got FTS. And they're able to identify exactly the transaction which I get it from. And they can then take this transaction, go to the centralized exchange, go to the banks and say, look, this individual made this transaction. Who is this individual? Can I ask you this though? So does this get back to some zero zero knowledge proofs as well and things like, what are they called? Snarks, right? Yes, uh, yes, zero knowledge. So zero knowledge is something that we believe will, will be a leap in terms of advancing KYC ML efforts in the DeFi space, which is good, very good, because even then make uh, DeFi even more accessible to a lot more people. Yeah. In fact, on the back of zero knowledge, there's this new thing out there. It's called a SOBAL token, your SPT. I'm not sure you heard of them before. What's it called? Say it uh, again. Soulbound token. Literally How do you spell it? Bounded to your soul. S-O-U-L. Soulbound tokens. Got it. Go ahead. Bounded to your soul. Okay. These tokens are unique in the sense that they are non-transferable. The moment it goes into your wallet, you can't transfer it anywhere else. So I would imagine in the future, your exchanges, your government agencies, and so on and so forth, We'll start issuing soulbound tokens for what for identity yes zero knowledge identity because yeah. then you will see that the soulbound token came from jp morgan or came from goldman that identify you either as an ai high network or, or as a, a citizen of the states or something like that right and then what's going to happen is that as a DeFi project all i need to know is that soulbound token exists in that wallet that's interacting with my smart contract i don't need to know who you are as an individual all I need to know is that you have been KYC and DD before. Right. And effectively. So even a traditional stock exchange actually has some structure for this as well, right? So if I buy a thousand shares of Apple from the NASDAQ, I have no idea who's on the other side of that trade. Yes. I have no idea. That's zero knowledge. It's a different type of zero knowledge. I get it, right? And the exchange actually knows who both sides of it are. So fair enough. But you're right. Yes. If I'm a trusted entity and you're a trusted entity, why do I have to give up like how many kids I have to use so that I can trade with you as long as I'm trusted, right? And I haven't done anything wrong. Yes, yes. So this is where I think the evolution will be. Now, AML is effectively being uh, done on chain. There are many AML service providers yep. that just look at your wallet, uh, see whether you have been participating or receive any tokens from any wallets that participated in any uh, malicious activities associated with any known sanctioned individuals. And then, based on your wallet itself, sanction you. So um, then the wallet address cannot participate in the DeFi space. Now, that is AML today in the DeFi world without having to uh, deploy KYC. Right. Yeah, no, I understand it. Can I ask you this, though? Is this a whole infrastructure that's getting built with Citadel? Like you're focusing on the real estate market as well. Do you see a time maybe where you'll venture outside of real estate into other type of asset classifications? And is this only valuable for you in like real tangible assets or is it valuable for digital assets as well? Let's put it this way. I would like to share a little story I have. Please. I was told as a young banker, 
Go ahead. But in my early days, it's also considered UBS. But at a point in time, I was told that when I started off, there was this very interesting story that my uh, MD shared with me. He said, look, right, you know, there's this bank that they know of in the past. Okay. You might know about it. You get this story. Apparently, what happened was that oil was going through the roof then. During those times, it's a very good market like today. Okay. And the banks don't have oil trading desks. So they were like, okay, we need a commodities oil trading desk right. to support our clients to, to make money. But you know, the oil traders in the oil market, oil bull market like this are very hard to find, right? So they were like, okay, who do I put in there? They found two oil equities traders who are very familiar with the oil companies and they put them into trading the oil markets. Okay. Now, everything was good. The market was winning, it's one directional. The oil desk was very profitable, right? Until one day the oil desk received a call. And the call was from a port somewhere in the world. And the call was saying that, hey guys, you know what? You have a bunch of oil tankers backlogged in my port now. <laughs> and my port is totally clustered out because of your oil tankers. What do you plan to do with all the oil you bought? <laughs> <laughs> and then the oil, the oil traders were like, what do you mean? I only trade contracts, right? Yeah, but contracts for delivery. <laughs> They forgot that's payment versus delivery, yeah. right? Yeah. Because they're equities trader, there's no such thing as equities, right? No. So you got a whole bunch of oil tankers jamming up the port, and the traders were like, I have no idea what to do with this, right? How do you sell all this physical oil you have? Right. right. And the port was like, I'm going to get rid of all your oil tankers because it's causing operational logistic challenges through all the rest of my operations. Right. So you have within a week to get rid of all your oil and get the ships out of my port. The oil trading desk had so much difficulty finding buyers for the oil because <laughs> it's physical oil delivery. Right. You know, all the tanks were full. Yeah, people were literally parking the oil in the oil tankers already. At the end of the day, had to take a very huge haircut just to get rid of all the oil. Sure. And the profit position the desk made turned into a loss position in a bull market, even though they got the direction correct. Right. Right. So the reason why I share this story is because. I believe that tokenization ultimately is a very specialized skill set. Right. Me having a background in real estate, I'm confident in tokenizing real estate. But if you're asking me to tokenize gold, asking me to tokenize oil, you're asking me to tokenize diamond. I have a story about diamond too. <laughs> and, and everything else, I will tell you I dare not to do it. Simply because for physical real world assets, you have to actually think about how you're going to store the tokenized assets, who is going to custody for you, how you're going to manage it such that it doesn't lose value in the real world. And obviously, if you don't understand how the legal environment, the legal landscape work in the real world, uh, for a movable assets, now real estate is immovable, that's why I like it, right? Yeah, for movable yeah. assets, uh, like anything else in the real world, how are you going to prevent that asset from being tokenized multiple times in different jurisdictions? And yeah, then... Exactly. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So I know it's a very long-winded approach uh, to answer your question, but I think uh, it sets the rational logic behind my answer, which is at the end of the day, Citadel will focus on real estate tokenization. We are built for real estate tokenization, build the infrastructure for it, and we're going to focus on that. Okay. But we are happy to share how we build our tokenization structure with other platforms with the right expertise and skill set to tokenize other kind of asset class, but we will not be tokenizing anything other than real estate. Perfect. So I, what I want to do, Joel, is I want to end here. But I think we left a lot of stuff on the table, but we've gone for like 45 or 50 minutes. And what I'd like to do, if you're okay with this, is bring you back and then dig deeper into the real estate tokenization part of this for like a part two, if that's okay with you. Because I think that's we've done great. 
Yeah, because we've done an incredible job of introducing all of these concepts, but now I want to dig deeper, but I don't want to do another 50 minutes because I want to make sure that people still listen. I really want to thank you for doing this. Stay with me, Joel Lin, Building Citadel. This was awesome, but let's have you back to do part two, yeah? Thank you, Michael. Looking forward to it.